we are so excited to be back on for a Friday today. This is a first time ever, and I'm really excited to have my friend, Miss Abby Schreiber, on the show today. Abby, how are you doing? I'm good. It's so fun to be here with you, Jess. I know. Well, you like our show. You've like Abby's a journalist, and her and I, she's a journalist in New York City. I've known her for a couple of years now, I think almost. We I met Abby through sort of the media world when I transitioned from finance into media and she was you know one of the first people I met think she's super cool girl Abby hails from Chicago so are you a sports fan or no yeah, you're like me. Really? But I, I you know what, though, I love my Chicago teams. I'm a yeah. huge ride or die Chicago Bulls fan. And I think part of it is because I grew up in the 90s. We're the same age. And, you know, yeah. that Michael Jordan era. I mean, come on. Come on. It does not get any amazing. better. Amazing. Yeah, it does not get any better than that. Um, Abby lives in Brooklyn. She formerly worked as an editor at Paper Magazine. And we all know Paper Magazine from, you know, the tagline, Break the Internet, also it being the most artistic and and coolest paper. I actually have a funny Mm -hmm. Paper Magazine story. When I started working at UBS, I sat next to this one guy named Didier, who was one of my best friends there. And he had this magazine. I'm like, oh, what's that? And he's like, "Uh, Paper Magazine? Are you not familiar? And he's (laughs) like, of course you wouldn't know or whatever. And he's like this is the coolest magazine and I like ever since then I was always like oh my gosh paper magazine um but then the the famous Kim Kardashian issue where she has the champagne coming out that's paper magazine and then I think arguably the second most famous uh story they've done in our time is the Amanda Bynes story which Abby actually produced and was a part of so can you give us a little behind the scenes take about Amanda Bynes like I'd love to hear what you think about her yeah so honestly The opportunity to work on that story and to write the cover story was probably one of the biggest highlights of my career at paper. And honestly, I know that this is not juicy or gossipy, but it's the truth. I have nothing but the best things to say about Amanda. She was just really kind, really easygoing, really up to try anything on set. Um, just a really cool, nice lovely human. Yeah. So how did that work? Do you, you did the photo shoot, which is that picture where she's, you know, it was like break the internet part two, where everyone was like, she looked so good. She was, you know, it just felt like she was on her game. She had the jeans on, right? And sort of like yeah. blouse or something. So you shot that. And then the next day you do the interview. Is that how those pieces sort of work? Yep. I mean, every cover shoot and interview is going to be different, but that's how the Amanda Bynes shoot worked. Yep. And you know, one of the big focus points of the story beyond her whole saga in in Hollywood um, and and what happened later, part of the kind of modern day angle we wanted to show was her her life as a student. She was um, at FITM, mm-hmm. the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in Los Angeles, and so that Is was that where the Hills Girls went. Yes, got it. Yes, that's where um, Heidi and Elsie went. <laughs> so cool. And Good Stephanie memory. Pratt. And Stephanie Pratt. Yep. That's right. And so that was also, I think, a little bit of the inspiration for the cover shoot because she was wearing this very classic collegiate look with the denim, with the blazer. She almost kind of reminded me of a little bit like Ally McGraw and Love Story, that 60s movie. Love Ally McGraw. And so anyway, the next day after the shoot, I met Amanda at FITM and she gave me a tour of her campus and I got the chance to speak 
with some of the directors of her program and they just had the most glowing wonderful things to say about her as a student you're just hanging out on campus with Amanda Vines walking yeah. around just like going through her day-to-day life kind of thing yeah and just does she have around. is there anything special about celebrities that are different from normal people there are for sure yeah. but I have to say in in this particular instance with Amanda she was really low-key and down to earth and I think because she was a real student attending classes and has not been acting in a while, I think her presence on campus had become really normalized. And so no students or people bothered her. She was just sort of like, let me grab my visa and my cell phone and I'll meet you up. Like just like a totally normal person. Yeah. So funny. Can you guys tell this is a New York City show? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that's on my end or yours, but there's a cat. I don't know. There's a cat up on a roof somewhere. Um, Kate, the funniest thing you told me is we hadn't connected a ton over COVID. We, you know, we did our, our Zoom drinks here and there. But, like, you had this big 2020, like, the biggest January 2020. You were, like, Grammys to the Oscars. And then, like, the yeah. next day, like, COVID dropped. I always think that's you, it was crazy, yeah, right? Truly, it was, like, going from 100 to zero. <laughs> I was doing so much travel just because... We had a really busy first quarter at Paper. Right after the new year, Paper was working on a huge cover story with Lady Gaga that was going to be shot in LA. And so that required a ton of preparation and planning and was super fun. And did you do the Pete Davidson one where he was like a doll? Uh, I did. I mean, I did, quote unquote. Yeah. I did. The whole team did. Yeah. I didn't interview Pete, um, but I was part of the shoot. Yeah. So that actually came out right before the Gaga shoot. So you know, we were like really riding high. We had yeah. just done this great shoot with Pete Davidson. We did this big shoot with the K-pop band BTS. Our next cover was Gaga. Mm-hmm. We were doing this elaborate 3D like photo shoot with all this intense technology. And I had gotten invited for the first time to the Grammys and was borrowing a dress. Yeah. It was a real like devil wears Prada glow up moment like Anne Hathaway getting transformed (laughs) and then my colleague and I got invited to like an Oscar party and you know we were just like really living the dream living the dream all right so to open up our first story of the day HBO has fine HBO Max excuse me has finally addressed Samantha not being included in the Sex and the City reboot and I found it pretty suspicious, to be honest. Like, I've been looking for statements. Um, Sarah Jessica Parker's dropped some cryptic, you know, pictures here and there. And then Kim Cattrall's stuff is always very, like, today, looking at the ocean. Like, this is the day. (laughs) She's very, what's earthy? What's the word? Like, you know, kind of hippie. Spiritual, new agey. Spiritual, very spiritual in her post. But it's like, letting the past go as the new wind blows in. (laughs) Like, her things are like, okay, you talking about SJP? Or what are you talking about there? Anyway, so the chief content officer at HBO Max, uh, and funny enough, one of the articles I sourced this from said, uh, the real life Mr. Big finally released a statement <laughs> on what's happening. So Casey says, just as in real life, people come into your life, people leave, friendships fade, and new friendships start. So I think it is all very indicative of the real life stages, the actual stages of life. Abby, does that not feel super produced? Plus, this is a business at the core. Like Sex and the City, yes, it's a friendship show, but it is a business, so it's not like it's a friendship game. Yeah, I mean, that is really the epitome of a non-statement statement. statement. (laughs) You know? (laughs) 
<laughs> like that's doing a lot of talking without really saying anything. And it's so fluffy. Like could that like guy bet get a better publicist there? Like it's just so much fluff. Yeah. Anyway. I know. I mean, I'm sure he felt like, you know, I'm the head honcho. I don't want to get in the muck of whatever is or isn't happening with these women in their personal lives. Right. Like I'm just gonna be really diplomatic and professional and hope people move on eventually. Yeah, but so will they? I agree. It feels really inauthentic. Plus the name, they're like, it's not no longer Sex in the City. Like, wh- what's the name again? I feel like they're doing a total rebrand on this thing. The name of the new 10 episode series is And Just Like That, which is kind of hard to remember. Yeah, you know, you, it's it's sort of yeah. innocuous sounding. You were saying that earlier. You're like, what's Sex in yeah. the City called? I was like, what do you mean? And what is sex? And I'm like, oh, right. They like rebrand, retitled their show. <laughs> so I wonder why. I wonder what prompted that and whether the fact that Kim Cattrall wasn't going to be back if, if they felt like they shouldn't call it Sex and the City so people knew that this was kind of a different thing. I don't know. Alright, so let's let's get into the cake here. My cake is that SJP, Sarah Jessica Parker, let's just call her Carrie for podcast sake and I feel like that's what everyone remembers her by anyway. She's the boss, right? Like I think she's the EP, arguably the star of the show, and I just feel like the overall decision maker. So do you think that SJP, do you think Carrie, excuse me, booted Samantha out or do you think Kim Cattrall left on her own terms? What's your take? My take is that Samantha or Kim Cattrall left on her own. I think she had been dropping little breadcrumbs you know, implicitly or sometimes explicitly for years that she was kind of over it. And several years ago, she was very public about not wanting to be in a third Sex and the City movie. And so honestly, I'm not surprised that she isn't returning for this HBO Max series. So what did she say at that time about the movie? Like, why did she pass on it when it was proposed? I also feel like, don't you feel like every two years they come out saying there's going to be Sex in the City 3? I feel like that's been happening every two years since the second drop. Totally. <laughs> totally. I mean, because the series is a cash cow. I mean, yeah. their residuals alone must be pretty significant. Um, but it was interesting because when I was looking back at this story, I saw an interview Kim Cattrall actually did in 2017 with Piers Morgan that I'd forgotten about. And interestingly enough, Kim said, and I quote, part of turning 60, you know, that was a very clear moment of how many years do I have left and what do I Mm -hmm. want to do with it? What haven't I done? I feel that the show was the best when it was the series and the bonus was the two movies, end quote. And so... You know, as she's getting older, I guess she just is sort of ready to start a new chapter and put her her Sex in the City years behind her. It's funny because that couldn't be less Samantha, that statement. Samantha that we know is like, I'm 60 and I feel 30. And like my boyfriend, totally. you know, I'm like, is 27, 27 and whatever. <laughs> something, something super sexual following that. Okay. As a journalist and an editor, and, and it's funny, you and I even talked about this before uh, we recorded today's episode. I... I usually honestly try to shy away from inserting my opinion or speculating on the personal lives of folks and especially any kind of story that is trying to pit women against one another. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, you and I both, we just want all the best for all these really talented, badass folks, yeah. all these women. And yet there's receipts, there's proof. You know, I don't have to speculate. I don't have to put my opinion where it shouldn't belong 
in this case because a couple years back when Kim Cattrall's brother died, SJP posted her condolences on social media and Kim Cattrall posted this really wild Instagram that totally calls Sarah Jessica Parker out. Mm-hmm. It says, I'm going to quote it because it's it's that kind of Oh yeah, she still has major. it up too. It's not like Kim it's Cattrall took up. it down. <laughs> no, she didn't delete it. She It is still fully up there. So this was in 2018 and Kim Cattrall posted, um, the image is, I don't need your love or support at this tragic time at Sarah Jessica Parker. But the caption is what is kind of the real thing. She says, my mom asked me today, quote, when will that at Sarah Jessica Parker, that hypocrite, leave you alone, end quote. And then Kim says to Sarah, your continuous reaching out is a painful reminder of how cruel you really were then and now. Let me make this very clear, if I haven't already. You are not my family. You are not my friend. So I'm writing to tell you one last time to stop exploiting our tragedy in order to restore your, quote, nice girl persona. Isn't that wild? Like I was saying to you earlier when we were talking about it, if you were like an executive at Google, you don't, you would never like post a picture of your, like, I mean, I think 99% of the time, most people wouldn't, even if they were close to the person, you wouldn't post something. So it does, maybe it felt like Carrie was trying to do it to get attention, but then um she said in an interview or something right that like she did reach out to her privately so she's got beef yeah sarah jessica said to someone that or or there are reports that that sjp actually did reach out privately to kim cattrall to express her condolences personally and you know behind the the scenes and sort of my argument for the public posting is that yeah i think without actually also you know, doing a private uh, letter or phone call or email, it could seem a little weird or inappropriate or, you know, virtue signaling or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in this case, I'm sure SJP was aware that if she didn't post anything on social media, the headlines would just be, you know, Kim Cattrall's brother died. No word or silence from Sarah Jessica Parker. And then everyone would be talking about the fact that, like, SJP didn't didn't acknowledge Kim's she's in a tough spot I tragedy all right Abby has her first story on the show and it's about TikTok trends you're an internet expert you're becoming a TikTok expert and you really like (laughs) uh studying and reading about Gen Z so take it away let's hear what you got yeah so apparently there are a ton of videos blowing up on TikTok lately featuring Gen Z creators doing makeup tutorials showing how to create big dark under eye circles. What's the point of that? (laughs) Good question. So let me back up because this story hit really close to home for me in a way because I have always had big dark under eye circles even as a kid. Mm -hmm. I think it's just like a genetic thing apparently because no matter how much I sleep they pretty much never go away. Is it like your thing where like if you wake up that's the thing you have to do before you see somebody kind of thing. Oh yeah. Got it. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I just feel like I look like I'm sick or (laughs) Don't say that. You got beautiful (laughs) big eyes. Come on. Oh, you're sweet. Um, so I don't know. It's funny because on the one hand it's like, I don't want the joke to be on us as millennials who are out of touch and are, you know, 
looking at Gen Zers on TikTok, like, you know, from an anthropological standpoint. And, you know, this whole thing is a big joke and we're taking it seriously. Like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's a TikTok trend. So take it with a grain of salt. It's True. not necessarily real. <laughs> but I do think it's funny that for whatever it's worth, it's like become a thing. And, you know, I think in some ways it, it's partly perhaps that Gen Zers are interested in in you know, doing these dark circles under their eyes as a way to either like emphasize their natural dark circles if they have them like me. So kind of embracing their flaws, you know? Right. Or it's a way to kind of create this visual representation of the, you know, the exhaustion, the stress, anxiety, and pain a lot of us are in right now during the pandemic to kind of put that vulnerability front and center and you know, really reject this idea of always having to put on this facade of a really plastic, perfect, filtered life. All right, let's just roll it back, though, for a second. Is Gen Zers, like, amplifying the stress in their eyes? Is that not the exact same as mine and your generation? Like, getting Botox to be extra plastic, to be extra perfect, to be extra filtered perfection like that's sort of our thing like they're doing the exact same thing just on the opposite end of it yeah you have a good point I mean you're you're right in a way you know like they are kind of two sides of the same coin because if millennials get branded as the Instagram generation where we love posting photos that are filtered and face-tuned and are showing these fancy aspirational lives we're all leading and they don't show any of the messiness of real life. That's us, right? You're saying that's us. And that's how we get attention. We're the Instagram. If you're a millennial, you're like an Instagram person. We're, We're Instagram and Gen Z is TikTok and Gen Z has embraced video and they, you know, have really embraced this more chaotic, raw, unfiltered, life that natural that kind of embraces mess like mess is a really like popular word but that's also how they get attention right and clout so at the end of the day whether you're an instagram person posting these kind of fake aspirational photos or a tiktoker emphasizing your vulnerability you know at the end of the day you you want the same thing which is attention which is clicks and <laughs> likes and streams and clout so you know it's like okay. it's just what's cool it's, you totally hit on something there because we grew up in our moment like that's facetune drops at the moment where we're like going out taking pictures like sort of being in that mix and I totally agree like ours facetune I remember discovering it right do you remember the first time somebody showed it to you you're like whoa mm-hmm. and then it was like yeah. holy that's amazing and then we got so everybody was posting so many more pictures because it's like I am so pretty look at this facetune look what it can yeah. do and I was laughing last night when I was doing my um we have a Gen Zer working on the show and she's like you guys need more video like video is what's picking up like that's how you're gonna grow is by video so I'm trying I'm working on some stuff not my comfort zone But I do the videos on a filter and then I post my filter picture and I'm like, whoa, that's kind of embarrassing. (laughs) It's like two different people (laughs) back to back on the stories. Got to work on that one. But the TikTokers, you're right. It's like the videos go. Remember when Instagram stories came out, everyone freaked out because they're like, whoa, kind of the moment I'm having right now. They're like, Mm -hmm. whoa. But then the filters came in, what, like a month after the lives of the videos dropped on there? Something like that. It was close, right? So Yeah. Well, and, you know, we didn't grow up with cameras in our faces 24-7. We didn't grow up taking selfies. Like, to take a selfie when we were a kid or even a teenager 
was to take like a Canon camera, point and click digital camera, camera or a disposable camera and turning it around and hoping for the best. You know, Gen Z grew up with with smartphones and with video technology on their computers and are just much more comfortable, I think, with with videos and, you know, photography. I mean, not to get like a semiotics professor, but I'm sure you could teach like really fascinating classes on this. Um, But my other cake, my other take on on this whole story is it's the cake abby this is cake for breakfast tell us my cake cake on this story (laughs) (laughs) honestly is i think that this trend is a little bit like gen z's version of the heroin chic trend from the 90s i mean we already know that gen z has a lot of nostalgia for the 90s and they've had this nostalgia for a while Mm -hmm. you know you kind of romanticize or have nostalgia for decades you missed or didn't live through at the time, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just back, just as with the heroin chic trends in the 90s, you know, there was this moment where physical manifestations or signifiers of, like, anxiety or baggage or damage or issues kind of became almost alluring or compelling, you mm-hmm. know? Like, you would see these photos of Kate Moss. Oh, Kate yeah. Moss. That's my studio here. Like, Kate Moss is, like, the heroine chic. And, like, yeah, there's no... Yeah. I still want to be her. Because <laughs> I think when you saw pictures like her where it was, like, she looks beautiful, but she also looks like she had a crazy night out and got no sleep, you know, there's this kind of, like, mystery behind that story where you're, like why does this person look like this? What is going on in their life? What are they doing? Who are they doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> so and true. I think it's a little bit of that with with this under eye circle trend where it kind of, you know, almost that, are we allowed to swear? Am I allowed to swear? I don't like swearing. All right. I will say, I won't swear then. I will say that, that little <laughs> bit of that like effed upness. Just kidding. I say the F-bomb all the time, but my every okay. time I do my, I get a text from my mom asking me not to swear. Oh, Well, the effed upness, I think, you know, has a little bit of an allure to it too, because mm-hmm. it means you've probably been living a, a wild life. And so I, I think there's a little bit of that. I think it's a little bit of Gen Z heroin chic, a little bit of Gen Z wanting to kind of own their flaws and their vulnerability and also probably a little bit of Gen Z trolling all of us old people who are taking this trend too seriously. (laughs) (laughs) They're trying to create their own thing. Look, that's what they're trying to do. So all the power to them. Um, I have to look into this because I actually haven't seen it yet. And look, in defense of the heroine chic, that was a great moment. I'm a huge Kate Moss stan. All right, moving on, we've got our Market Minute of the day. Huge news in the female Wall Street IPO badass women's spaces. Bumble goes public today. So Bumble ran by Whitney Wolf Hurd. We've talked about her a lot on the show. She's like the, she's like who, if I was 20 years old in college right now, look, at my age now, I still want to be her. But like, she'd be the, I want to be Whitney, she's so polished, she's so beautiful, smart, great businesswoman, and she's now a billionaire. The one thing I always think is hilarious, or I'd want to get into the psyche of these um, these people who go public with their companies they created, like day one, whatever, she must have been worth 100 mil, call it maybe liquid, on the Wednesday. She wakes up Thursday and she is worth like a billion dollars, right? So that's got to be a funny it's thing to, to bounce around in your head. The three comma club, baby. The three comma club. 
<laughs> so Bumble went public under the uh, ticker BMBL. Now, like I always have to, let's push back a notch on this story. It, are bankers on Wall Street just massively undervaluing IPOs right now? Because every IPO we're seeing, it's like IPO day up 60%, 70%, like these huge IPO moments. And I'm just going to give those guys a hard time because I am kind of curious if they do that for for the big market news the next day. All right, so I'm really excited uh, for this next piece that Abby and I are going to do. Abby's like a really big true crime lover. Like I said Mm -hmm. earlier, internet culture expert. And I just think it's really cool to explore some of this. We haven't done a lot of true crime on Cake for Breakfast yet. And we're all big fans of it. Obviously, if you're listening to a podcast, that's the top 10 on everything is anything true crime related. So Abby's going to do this deep dive on a story that's gaining some traction on TikTok. I actually had not heard of it before. I wasn't familiar with it, but... uh, yeah, it's really cool. I don't want to say cool. What do I say about this? It's really uh, fascinating, fascinating, polarizing. So let's get into it. Well, so you're totally right, Jess. First of all, I am super into true crime. Even as a kid, I would always be glued to TV marathons on A&E or Lifetime or whatever, all mm-hmm. about weird murders. And my dad, even to this day, still teases me about my like weird, morbid interest in true crime documentaries <laughs> and podcasts. But apparently there are tons of us out there because those yeah. genres are booming. So that brings us to this story. Um, for those who grew up in the 90s, mm-hmm. you might remember the fascinating saga of the Menendez brothers' murders. And for those of you listening who do not remember or were too young um, and were not born yet, this story uh, involves two wealthy brothers who grew up in Beverly Hills being accused and ultimately convicted of killing their parents in a pretty gruesome way. Oh, they they yeah. shot their parents, and I, I will spare the details, but it you know it it's it was dark. intense. Yeah, and. There are so many things that are fascinating about this story, but, you know, the Menendez Brothers saga, this was in the early 90s. I think the actual homicide was in 1989, but the the court case and a lot of the um, aftermath was in the early 90s. The Menendez Brothers saga was really America's first major televised court case or true crime event and really foreshadowed the O.J. Simpson trial a few years later. And it was one of those watershed moments in in culture where real life or, you know, the news became just as fascinating or even more fascinating than sitcoms or movies. You know, people were tuning in to this court case you see a picture of like a family with their tv dinner or whatever then they all go sit in front of the tv dad picks the show and tonight he's like i got to see the coverage tonight's the news golden girls will have to wait till tomorrow guys (laughs) yeah exactly and you know that's kind of normal now especially the last four years we've had here in the states with our crazy political stuff but back then that was really unusual and you know tldr basically these two rich brothers you know, killed their their parents in Beverly Hills. And, you know, I think one of the many reasons why this crime captured the attention of Americans the way it did was because on the outside, the Menendez family looked like they had it all, right? They Handsome guys, you know, the I have to say. Yeah. Handsome brothers. Their father, um, his story was kind of this American dream, rags to riches tale. Their dad, Jose, was born and raised in Havana, Cuba, 
immigrated to America as a teenager, met his wife, Kitty, while they were in college in southern Illinois. And so she was married. She didn't. She she was American. Yeah. Yeah, She was American. The two get married, have two sons, and then um, Jose becomes a successful businessman who eventually moves with his family to Beverly Hills. And, you know, I think especially then the combination of the wealth, the rags to riches Mm -hmm. story, and... Like you said, the fact that Eric and Lyle were these two handsome, kind of all-American looking Princeton. Guys. Like these guys went to one of them went to Princeton for yeah. heaven's sakes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think all of those things taken together just kind of captured people's attention and scrambled their brains a little bit because, you know, despite the fact that many of us have seen American Psycho, I think mm-hmm. at the time there was still this disbelief. That people who, at least on the outside, appeared to have it all together could actually be dealing with some pretty dark stuff. Well, yeah, what was the the motive again? Well, so this is where the story gets even more fascinating. And this is where the TikTokers come in. Got it. So the the recent story about the TikTokers, um, I have to give credit to the New York Times who ran the piece from reporter Mm -hmm. Ezra Marcus. um, And Ezra interviewed a lot of interesting people, including some of these um, TikTok advocates who, by the way, don't all live in America. I thought it was interesting that some of the people he was interviewing were like in Germany and all over the place. So this apparently has transcended just like local U.S. pop culture. So one of the reasons a lot of these Gen Zers have really latched on to the case, and, and when I say that, I should explain that a lot of these Gen Zers on TikTok are coming out trying to advocate for the brothers to be released from prison. So they've been in prison. They were convicted and um, have been in prison for like over 30 years at this point. And a lot of these young people are coming out and saying, you know, they've paid their dues. Mm-hmm. They they should have their freedom. And one of the, the sort of main parts of the case that a lot of... Um, these young folks have really gravitated towards are allegations that the defense presented during the trial uh, saying that the brothers had been abused by their parents and alleging in particular that they'd been physically and sexually abused by their father. Oh my god, the father was sexually abusing his own sons? Like that? Allegedly. And the brothers... Oh, because I guess the parents are dead, right? So they have no... Right. Gotcha. Right, there's no no real way to prove Prove it. it. Yeah. So the brothers alleged that they were abused by their parents and and that the father particularly abused them in a really heinous way and that they feared for their lives. And so that's why they they killed their parents. And, you know... there was a but, right? Because there's like a big life insurance or something on the table? Yes. I mean, it's, it's so hard to know what really happened, right? Because this was the defense. But the prosecution, meanwhile, point to the crime as sort of a classic financially motivated case where, you know, you get the parents out of the way, the brothers have access to the family's money, you know, and and initially when the the homicides took place, the brothers weren't at the very beginning um, suspects, as is my understanding. And I should also should just back up here and say, you know, I might not be Gen Z, but I was like an infant when this actually happened. Yeah, and you yeah. and I just were like little kids. So I little didn't even kids, yeah. know about this when it was happening. I, in my crazy true crime, uh, you know, obsession, I think came across this this story like Later years on. later. 
But yeah. I love what you're so, tapping into, though. To sorry to interrupt you. I love what you're tapping into because it's the, you're saying it's basically the start of what we grew up with, which was OJ, Clinton, um, yeah. you know, modern day Trump or mod- modern day Corona, even where like totally. the news overtakes the Hollywood, which is the power. Like it's like people want to know what's going on. You said you hit it right. U.S. pop culture, like over overbears ever more polarizing than anything else going on in the world totally it's like that that cliche the truth is stranger than fiction i mean in this case that that was certainly you know what was happening and so kind of backing up to to the menendez brothers you know it's my understanding they initially were not considered suspects but what put them Mm -hmm. on the investigators radars was how much money they were spending in the wake of their parents' deaths. Like, they were just going to town, spending money, driving fancy cars, you know, just living these lavish lifestyles. And then, okay, this is where it gets... Very Scott Peterson. Totally. So, like, major, major red flags. You know, these guys are spending all this money. They're not necessarily acting the way, you know, supposedly, like, you know sons mourning their parents are and and okay it gets even stranger because the police are trying to get the brothers to confess and you know have evidence that they committed the crimes and apparently eric menendez confessed to his psychologist right i saw that yes and normally you know there's a a patient psychologist you know confidentiality and with murder and with crime there are, I, I think I mean I'm not an expert in this but I think there is kind of um laws or special situations just as there might be with, no with like, therapy a there's two things it's they're like this is a secret this is all a secret unless I feel like you're hurting somebody or I feel like somebody's yeah. hurting you and then the secret is no then I have to tell people so that's that that's sort of the way it goes with therapy okay okay and so Eric tells his psychologist that he killed the parents and then his brother Lyle apparently threatens the psychologist and the psychologist tells his mistress about the confession and about oh, the murders. Oh, this is juicy. Wow. And the deep. mistress is the one that tells the police. And the judge during the case said that ultimately the the confession was admissible in court because one of the brothers, Lyle, had, you know, violated doctor-patient privilege by threatening the psychologist. Jesus. How wild is that? That's, like, pretty juicy. The thing with the mistress, I think, is the best piece, that she was just like, yeah, just like I got a this. mistress. A part of me feels like she wanted to be like, I'm tired of being the mistress. I want to be front and center now. I'm going to get my name in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you can't make this stuff up. And so and the psychologist's wife is like, wait, how would he be so like, close to that woman? Oh, okay. right. Like, hello. <laughs> um, so where, so, what's happening now? What's modern day so Menendez? Now the Menendez brothers have both been put away for decades. Originally, they were put in two separate prisons. But in 2018, they ended up getting transferred. And I forget which brother transferred, but net net they wound up in the same prison and actually like got to see each other for the first time in like decades and i think had this like very tearful reunion and and these guys both got married like they both it's so crazy to married, think that you have, have an actual families. life yeah yeah and 
so bringing things back to Gen Z and this story that that this reporter Ezra Marcus wrote, you know, I think I think one thing that's really fascinating is that looking at when this was happening, which by now is like over 30 years ago, mm-hmm. so much has changed in our culture since the 90s. Back then, so much of the way true crime was portrayed and consumed was through this really tabloidy lens, like National Enquirer, Jerry Springer, you oh know, gosh, Jerry Springer, that is such, that's like the OG of talk shows. That's amazing. Totally. So it's like whether it's the Menendez brothers, OJ's trial, or Lorena Bobbitt, Tanya yeah. Harding, like there was this sense that you were watching or reading about these these crimes and these trials almost the same way you would be driving by like a car in flames. Like you Mm -hmm. would gawk at it and be like, whoa, what the hell? Like this is crazy. Like, like this is messed up. And today I think there's a greater awareness, especially among young people um, around different topics that we just didn't talk about back then. And so I think the way we understand. So you're saying people were more, our generation's more batshit because things were more closeted, whereas the modern day. Yeah. God, I, that's a, that's a good comparison. Actually. I'd never thought of it that we're modern day. It's like, oh, I have, you know, an anxiety. Okay. Well, we're going to take care of you. Settle down. Take, take a moment. That's sort of like the difference. Whereas you and I, they'd be like, I don't care. Go for a run. Yeah. And I think, you know, the way we even understand true crime has become a bit more nuanced because people are more comfortable having hard conversations about mental health or mm-hmm. other issues. Like the way, you know, there's greater awareness, especially among younger generations around issues like trauma, PTSD, sexual violence, abuse, and other issues like that that just weren't really being discussed 30 years ago. Yep. You know, I think for a lot of these Gen Zers, there's the sense that, with the Menendez brothers, there were these mitigating circumstances, supposedly, you know, if you choose to believe the allegations that they were abused by their parents, that really contributed to the the violent murders. And so these Gen Zers kind of look at the case like they were abused, they killed their parents in sort of retaliation, they've been in prison for 30 plus years they've done their time and now they should be able to live the rest of their lives as free men it's so crazy because you never actually think of people that murder someone getting out of jail but they were so young so like it's like really happening well that story is um, again not amazing that story is incredibly polarizing and interesting and yeah like i i don't want to say we don't see stuff like that because we still see terrible stuff today but Definitely is a little 90s nostalgia there. That's really interesting. Well, that was a lot of fun, Abby. What do you think of being on cake for breakfast? You had a good time? I have had the best time, Jess. Thank you for having me. Is it different writing stories than podcasting, do you think? Is it sort of a different storytelling in a different way? I think so because, you know, with podcasts, especially if you have two hosts, there's so much more give and take back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I like that you know, it can be a bit more casual and free-flowing. Like, we're just talking versus writing an article, you know, you want it to sound really polished and smart. And not to say I don't want to sound polished and smart on this podcast, but I think I can be a bit looser, maybe. You can be a little more relaxed because we're just hanging out with whoever's listening to us. Um, All right, where can everybody find you? She's verified on Instagram. That's I'm always jealous of you with that. Which also <laughs> is hilarious because I have like 1,400 followers. And so sometimes people will um, 
at me and be like, why are you verifying? Because <laughs> you're a bad, you've got a badass job. But you're, you're inst- I'm, I'm Abby Schreiber 28 on let's, Instagram. Let's spell 28 it out. is my birthday day. It's not just a random number. So it's Abby, A B B Y Schreiber, S as in Sam, C H R E I, B as in boy, E R 28. And that's the same on Instagram and on Twitter. Are you on TikTok too? Okay, this is like the real tea because you have really generously portrayed me as a tiktok expert i'm not on tiktok <laughs> is that crazy no not at all because you can be t- the beauty of tiktok on like instagram it was like you were locked out until you were in i was sort of like a really late joiner whereas tiktok like i didn't get an account until we got one uh with the show and you could but i've been on it for like a year you can still access it like um like you like you couldn't with facebook or instagram so again maybe that's a tiktoker thing but You're in the mix. You know what's going on. All right. Well, thank you so much, Abby. And uh, we look forward to chatting more true crime with you. 